Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and be our guest, and let my words be your words, all to the glory of Jesus Christ. Seated. Well, if you didn't know it, Archdeacon's away. It's the end of the season of Epiphany, and there's a rather archaic term for this Sunday in our church calendar, quinquagesima. And of course, you all know what that tongue twister means, right? Well, it refers to the fact that there are only about 50 days until Easter. You may recognize the quin in there, which is a root five, and that tells you about the 50 days. And as you should know, though, more importantly, this is the Sunday before Ash Wednesday. As I pointed out a few weeks ago, we have considered how Jesus was manifest during the season of Epiphany. And manifest, again, recall what I said. It sort of means that when you recognize what we know about him, you have no doubt after that as to who he is. And I'm just emphasizing that again. I pray that by now we're all pretty much fully in agreement with Peter, who when asked, said that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's recall just briefly that setting for that crucial denouement. Jesus and the disciples were in the northeast corner of Israel, and that's a very pregnant place, if you will. Um, lots of things happen there, if, if not only the rising of the River Jordan. But the Lord there asked him who Peter thought he was, and Peter answered, as we know. Well, that season is now over, and we enter into what we call pre-Lent, if you will. And here, we really have to shift gears completely. That holy and penitential season of Lent is where we are obliged, as I see it, to hunker down and dig into our own lives to see how we might be able to amend them to follow Christ more nearly and to love him more dearly, as the song has it. What Lent is about is trying to alter our behavior so that it is consistent with our belief that Jesus is who he says he is. And of course, as we prepare in this period of time, I suggest that we should be introspective or reflective, but not somber. Perhaps we will spend more time reading and indeed studying Holy Scripture. As you well know, I believe strongly we cannot do enough of that. I've said it a hundred times. Or perhaps we'll spend more time in prayer, focusing on our own spiritual centers, our hearts, and try to guide our thinking to interact more with God so that we may be better able to hear God's answers to our prayers in our hearts. Something as disciplined as perhaps adding on the daily morning Mass, at least on occasion, and parenthetically that will begin at 469 Lincoln Street in our new chapel a week from tomorrow. Or you might add on attendance at the Stations of the Cross on Friday evenings, beginning this coming Friday where I will be there. Any of these things may be an enhancement to our spiritual life. But for goodness sake, if you believe that Christ is who he said he was, do something. 
Whatever we do, we should reflect more, pray more, read more scripture as we approach the passion of our Lord in preparation for that hugely important event in sacred history, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead at Easter. The first seminal event, of course, is the Incarnation, and we talk about that a lot in this church. The Archdeacon mentions it frequently. This is God's coming to earth as God's only son, really God and really man. Hard to comprehend, but stick with it and you'll get it. And the second is Jesus' crucifixion. The gospel for today, read by Deacon Rhonda, is placed in the historic lectionary, I believe, to help shape the trajectory for our minds toward those powerful few days that we call the Passion. Let me read them again, at least the first part. And this is from Luke 18. We were talking about how we could better announce the gospel so you'd know the numbers and be able to store away what you've heard and where it came from. Anyway, Luke 18, verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. Call them pagans. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, word, another word there could be scourge, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Most importantly here, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. <clears throat> Lest we forget, this was the third time that Jesus had revealed these terrible upcoming events to his disciples. Recall, if you will, that in Matthew's Gospel, this was Luke, in Matthew's Gospel, his foreshadowing revelation follows immediately on the section I mentioned a moment ago where Peter confesses at Caesarea Philippi that Jesus is indeed the Christ. And similarly in Mark, the third of the synoptics, first written, third one, after Jesus tells his disciples this fact, Peter remonstrates that such abuse can never happen. What does that do? It brings about a rebuke from Jesus. Yes, a rebuke as if Jesus wanted to be absolutely sure that his followers got the message, that he was who he said he was, and that his destiny was to die. All the synoptic passages carry the same, same message. Are we not surprised that the disciples do not seem to get it? What does it mean when we read that this saying, or perhaps its meaning, was hidden from the twelve disciples? Certainly, we don't think they were dull of mind. It must be that when they heard this, it was simply so very contrary to what they thought Jesus was all about that they blocked their understanding. They simply could not take in 
exactly what Jesus was saying to them. They were still entirely caught up in what they thought his purposes were. What they envisioned and wanted was a conquering king that would loose his power in Jerusalem and blast his enemies off the face of the earth. They were simply not ready for his paradoxical ways, his gentleness, his turning the other cheek, his offering to give so much more than he got. This just did not fill the bill for this admittedly very errant group. Sure, they had been caught up by his miraculous interventions and healings, but the counsels of perfection, as the Sermon on the Mount has been called, were not anything like what they had in mind. Again, in the spirit of anticipation of the passion that is to come, let us look for just a moment at what Jesus told them. He would be mocked, scourged or flogged, and spat upon, and then be killed. As we close our eyes and even try to contemplate all this, we find ourselves totally off kilter. How could this be done to God's Son? At this time, I'm only going to comment on scourging, that part of the list of abuses that was used only as a prelude to crucifixion. Historians of the time tell us that folks that had been scourged, and by that I mean whipped with leather strands with pieces of metal or bone embedded therein, often died of the scourging itself and never made it to the cross. Those who did the flogging would continue flogging until they were exhausted. Before my conversion only six years ago, when among other things I began to realize that Scripture was indeed the Word of God in words of men, I used to gloss over that repulsive fact of Jesus' crucifixion. I thought, after all, many people were crucified in those days, so what was one more? But after I got the big picture, I said, this was God who was tortured and crucified. It's like the man in the stage play who during each performance his fellow thespian aims a gun at him, fires the gun, and the man says, my God, I'm shot. And then one night somebody puts a real bullet in the gun and he says, my God, I'm shot. My God, I am shot. And I sort of see that as what happened to me when my eyes were finally opened that this is what it was all about. We are torn up here. We find this to be beyond barbaric. And if we've seen Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, and I'm looking at Miss Monica back there because she can't watch it, <laughs> The Passion of Christ, we have those images in our, heart, in our brains and call, can call them up at any time. Not that we want to, but we can. Well, abhorrent or not, this is what it is all about. In fact, we must acknowledge that this is the entire reason that Jesus came to earth. Worship songs have it that he was born to die. 
He volunteered to become as one of us except without sin. And he allowed his own execution. Jesus' human side demonstrated the greatest of courage. He knew he was going to die, and yet he kept going, not changing his ways to fit a more accepted posture, but steadfastly pushing on to an excruciatingly painful death. Say it another way, Jesus knew exactly what he was about. The movement to the cross was proceeding inexorably. This was all part of the plan, and we absolutely must understand this. It is part of the sweep of sacred history. Jesus volunteered to come to earth. He became incarnate and accepted torture and death on a cross. I've been reading Pope Benedict's book entitled Jesus of Nazareth, and he takes it one step further by pointing out that those who mocked and struck Jesus were causing the destiny of the suffering servant to be literally fulfilled in him. Benedict says, abasement and exaltation are mysteriously intertwined. I think that's beautiful. It is a paradox, to be sure, but all through history, people look upon the disfigured face of Jesus, and there they recognize the glory of God. Now here, amen, amen, I agree. Now here, I must insert the word atonement, some of you heard me talk about atonement previously during an adult ed session, but you really cannot hear enough concerning this concept. What we're talking about here is the reconciliation of God and man through the work, as it's been called, or the action of Jesus Christ. God saw the continuing sinful behavior of humankind and although he loved his creation, and we preach that in the Psalms and sing it and so forth, his need for justice superseded that love. I wasn't going to mention the Genesis section this morning, but think back to that. After Noah's, the flood and all that Noah went through, God puts his bow in heaven. That's called the Noahic or Noahic. I don't know. Bob will have to tell me how to pronounce it. Thank you very much, Bob. The Noahic covenant... <laughs> where God plants a rainbow in the heavens to remind man of the covenant that he's established. And what did man do? That's just the beginning. That's way over there in Genesis. The sweep starts there, but it continues on. Read Numbers sometime. Boring name, but do read it sometime. You've got 40-some years of them wandering in the wilderness and being naughty, repeatedly. God warns them. He says, come on, folks, through Aaron and through Moses, and they still do everything just about wrong. Back to my text. God could not simply look on evil and not do something about it. God's wrath, as the bishop pronounces it, and I say wrath, is not a blind anger as we as human beings have. But 
it does demand satisfaction. Jesus was able to offer up himself as a substitution for all men and women for all time. And that is the good news. As Paul says in Romans 8, now there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And as many of you know, my favorite chapter is 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All the debts have been satisfied. Yes, we may sin again, and we do sin again. But so long as we're right with God, God's grace, through that substitutionary act of Christ, allows continual repentance. So long as we're sincere in our desire to do better, to be sanctified, to become more like Christ. So, the scourging, the mocking, the spitting, all had to happen. It was planned that way. But happy day, happy day. Jesus faced the apparent defeat of the cross because he was certain of the ultimate victory. As my friend Barclay puts it, without the cross, there could never be a crown. Thank God for his son. Amen.